So we are in the book of Galatians right now, this year at Scottsdale Bible Church, spending over 20 different Sundays uh, going through the six chapters of Galatians, and we're at the end of chapter three right now, and and I can't wait to share with you what his word says and how life-changing it really is. So Cactus Campus venue and you guys here, let's bow together right now in unison and pray for our time in the word. Father, I thank you for your goodness, for your greatness, for your holiness, and for your compassion. Lord, anything that we could ever dream of who you are is found in you, in the Godhead. And Lord, it still amazes me that you've even chosen to reach out to us uh, through your written word to give us intelligent information that we can apply to our lives and how we can know you and follow you this side of heaven. So as we continue on, Lord, in our look right now in Galatians at a rather tough subject for some to hear today, this idea of your law and its purposes in our lives, I pray, God, that you might encourage us, help us to maybe understand things that we didn't know, and Lord, help us to certainly apply these things to our lives in such a way that it will give us joy and bring you glory. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I got an email this week in response to my sermon last week, and this particular email was from a wonderful seasoned saint in our church, and I loved his concern and his challenge. He began his email by thanking me for my good ministry here at Scottsdale Bible Church and how he and his wife leave every Sunday morning feeling, and I quote, encouraged, challenged, and well instructed in the Scriptures. Folks, I got to tell you, that's the way you start an email to me. It really is. I mean, if you're going to say something tough, which this brother is in about a minute, that's the way to begin the email. And Pat Sullivan, who's the associate pastor of the church and receives initially all emails that come into my office, we sit down every Tuesday and we read every email that comes to me and and, and to the church here. And as we were reading it together, Pat, who has a great sense of humor, said to me after that wonderful compliment, he said, you do know that a but is coming, right? And I said, yeah, I kind of sensed that. And not to disappoint, this gentleman went on to say that my sermon last Sunday raised some real concern in his mind. And specifically, his concern was that as I laid out that our salvation before God is by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from any good works or moral effort, he was disturbed that I didn't mention the positive role that good works play once we have come to faith in Christ. He went on to explain that he agrees that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone apart from works, but he feared that based on last week's message, people would be misled into thinking that good works don't play a role at all in our walk with God, and particularly in response to our salvation in Christ. And then he signed it, for what it's worth, your brother in Christ and his name. It was a wonderful email addressing a great concern, and I'm glad he wrote it. I told Pat that in our response to this gentleman to simply thank him for his email and then say this, wait until this Sunday. Because one of the things that I told you guys when we started this series is that my only job in this series is to follow closely what Galatians does as it guides us paragraph by paragraph through a right understanding of God and our salvation and how to walk with him. And so I'm not going to insert things parenthetically when I'm preaching if the Word doesn't insert it. 
But here's the good news. It is that I knew this last week when I was talking about faith alone and Christ alone. Because the scriptures are logical, because God does anticipate our responses, wouldn't you know that the text we're going to look at today addresses my friend's concern? It goes on to address the idea that if we are saved by faith apart from the law, then what's the purpose of the law? I mean, verse 19 couldn't ask it more directly. Look up here on the screen when it says, why then the law? Why then the law? If it can't save us, then why did God give it? Now, a bit more briefly, before we answer this question, I want to recap where we've come from so far in our look at Galatians, because the passage we're going to look at today actually does this. Uh, the first few verses of the passage we're going to look at today gives kind of a preamble or of what's to come, or a recap of what the first couple of chapters of Galatians has been saying. And so if you brought a Bible, open to Galatians chapter 3. We're going to begin at verse 15. If you didn't bring a Bible, then look up here on the screen or on your outline where I've put the Scriptures as well. And look at what verses 15 to 18 say as kind of a recap of the main thesis of the book of Galatians. This will set the tone for our time this morning. It says, to give you a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. <laughs> now, I know what some of you are thinking right now. You're thinking, how is that an easy and uncomplicated recap of what Galatians has been saying so far? I mean, you look at the words it uses, promises, covenants, offspring, annulments, ratifications. I mean, it's kind of a complicated passage. Not really. Let me explain. Here's what you need to understand to know what these first few verses are saying here. You just have to understand what a covenant is. You see, in the Old Testament, God made numerous covenants with individuals that then would extend to either the people of the world or the nation Israel. And a covenant, for lack of a better term, was basically a deal, a deal that God would make with individuals in the Old Testament, but not a business deal. It would be a deal on how they could know him and follow him. So, for instance, God made covenants in the Old Testament with Adam, Noah, Abraham, Moses, David. And two of the most important covenants, if you will, for New Testament purposes are what we call the Abrahamic and the Mosaic covenants, the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with uh, Moses. And the covenant with Abraham basically had two wonderful promises to it from God. The first one is that salvation, how we know God, was going to come through faith and faith alone. That's core to the Abrahamic covenant. It says in Genesis 15, 6, that Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Whoa. So it's through belief and faith that we become righteous in God's sight, that we know him. That's core to the Abrahamic covenant. And then the second promise to Abraham is that all nations would be blessed through him and this covenant. 
You can read about it later in Genesis 12, 3, 18, 18, and 22, 18, that salvation through faith was going to come to the whole world through Abraham. And sure enough, as we're going to see in a second here, when Christ came in the lineage of Abraham, this is the fulfillment of that covenant. Through faith in Christ, salvation comes to the whole world. So far, so good. But then you'll notice that Galatians 3 says that 430 years later or so, along came Moses, and God made a rather different covenant with him and Israel, this one based on works or law. So the first five books of the Old Testament, particularly four out of those five, talk about God's covenant with Moses where he gives them the Ten Commandments, don't murder, don't lie, don't steal, don't commit adultery on their Sabbath day, all the Ten Commandments. And then some of you didn't know this, but then there's an additional 400 regulations and stipulations as a part of the Mosaic Covenant with the idea being that if you obey these laws... If you obey this very high standard that God puts before us, then you will find him. It's a covenant. But then the New Testament comes along with the time of Jesus, and the question that they were all wrestling with is, well, then does salvation depend on faith, the Abrahamic covenant, or law, the Mosaic covenant, or some combination of both? And many of the New Testament books are written in light of this dilemma. And so the logic here in Galatians 3, and maybe now you understand, is that the original promise to Abraham of salvation by faith alone is now fulfilled in Jesus, so that salvation can come to all people who believe and trust in Jesus apart from just paltry moral efforts. And this doesn't abrogate or negate the Mosaic covenant. As Jesus said, it fulfills it. It brings it to completion, and as we're going to see a little bit today, even puts part of it to rest. So salvation is indeed by faith alone in Christ alone, apart from works. This is all verses 15 to 18 are recapping and make clear. Now, it's at this point in the discussion, however, that the obvious question comes up to a discerning reader, and verse 19 nails it when it says, well, then why then the law? I mean, think about it. Why then did God make this covenant with Moses? If it's unable to save, if the Mosaic covenant is not really our pathway towards salvation, if it's through faith and faith in Christ, then why did God complicate matters by making this covenant with Moses and giving us the law? Or to put it in a more modern-day context, if good works don't save us before God, then what good are they? Why do we do them, and what is their purpose? And these are good questions. And Galatians 3 goes on to answer them. So in our time remaining, three things. Three things that the rest of chapter 3 opens up to us in our understanding when it comes to the purposes of God's law or good works in general. And the first thing that it hammers home is that the purpose of God's law is to reveal now, I'm going to give you three words to begin with R today. This is the first one, to reveal that we sin and need a Savior. That's why God's law exists. It shows us that we sin and need a Savior. So look at how verse 19 goes on to answer its own question. It says, why then the law? Here it is. It was added because of transgressions. 
until the offspring, meaning Jesus, should come to whom the promise has been made, meaning Abraham and all of us, and was put in place through angels by an intermediary. So the law was given in light of our sin to somehow reveal that we sin and fall short. But then the question becomes, well, how? How does that work? Well, look at verses 21 to 23. It tells us. It says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture, meaning the Old Testament law, imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. Now we're getting somewhere, folks. Obviously contained here, and you don't want to miss this because this is key to understanding this first purpose of the law, is an image, a word picture given to us to help us understand this first purpose of the law. And you will notice in this image that there are three players in the drama, a judge, a jailer, and prisoners. The judge is God's law, the prisoners are humankind, and the jailer is our sin or our fallenness. And so the way it works is this, that God puts before us his holy standard of right and wrong. He puts it before all of humanity, the law, things like the Ten Commandments and all the other moral imperatives of the Old Testament. But because you and I are sinful and fallen and because we're not able to follow through perfectly in our obedience to God's law, can you own that today? I can, and I've been at this now for 30 years, because we fail at keeping his standards, we literally become entrapped, imprisoned, stuck in our own frailty and ability to live up to God's standards. I haven't met a human being yet who hasn't at some point in their life experienced this, experienced getting stuck in your own humanity, in your own fallenness, and realizing whether it's in your marriage or with your kids or at work or in your own personal morality that you just fall short. And God says that's exactly the way it's supposed to work. You're imprisoned by your own sin, and through that process, you realize that you need a Savior, you need forgiveness, you need God, and you need His mercy. So in this way, please see, God's law helps us realize our moral deficiencies when we fail to keep his law. And it points us to our need for a Savior and for Jesus. So God's law judges us. We all fall short. Our sin imprisons us. We realize we can't do it in our own strength. But then Christ frees us as we realize that he is the one who can forgive us of our sin. So the first purpose of the law is clear, to reveal that we fall short and point us to the only one who can save us, namely Jesus and his death on a cross for our sins. And though there are obviously many implications of this first purpose of God's law, as I was sitting in my home office this week putting together this message, the one thing that came to me that I think is so appropriate for Scottsdale Bible Church and for Cactus and for our venue is simply this. We need to recognize once again that it is a good thing when someone gets frustrated while trying to earn his or her salvation through human effort. In other words, it's a good thing when somebody feels conviction before God over the bad things that they do. And you and I need to stop 
trying to protect those around us from feeling guilty for the things that they do wrong, we need to stop trying to play the Holy Spirit, stop trying to soft pedal what God might be trying to do in other people's lives through helping them feel guilt, feel shame, even feel frustration as this first purpose of the law works in and through their lives. I mean, I'm right there with some of my close family members right now. Not you, sweetheart, some of the other ones. I'm right there. And, and that's as I see family members do particular things that I know are going to be hurtful to them. I want to go in and rescue them. And God and my wife says to me, don't do that. Because you see, that they need to learn on their own. And more importantly, they need to do business with God because he's going to do his revealing work in and through their frustration. Do you see how this works? And so we got to get our hands off this and allow God to be God. You know, as I, as I, as I think autobiographically about my own life, I, I will never forget as long as I live the very first time as a young guy I experienced this in my own walk with God. I was 17 years old. I hadn't come to faith in Christ yet, but I was in what you might call heavy-seeking mode. I was a junior in high school. I'd never really dabbled much in church, but I was very thirsty about spiritual things. And so even in all of my, you know, not knowing much and kind of living my own life, I was going to a Christian meeting every week put on by an organization called Youth for Christ or Campus Life in which we would have fun and do Bible studies and learn a bit about Jesus. But at the same time as I was doing that, I went to high school in a very small town in Ohio. I was also doing the small town secular Ohio thing, and that was I was partying hardy every weekend, kind of living this very duplicitous life as I was seeking spirituality through Jesus on one hand, but then living a very rebellious life on the other. Some of you can relate. And I'll never forget one particular weekend before I came to Christ, we had a party at one of my friends' house, and this has never happened to me since, thankfully, but I went off the deep end in drinking that night, and I don't remember anything about the night. I remember going out at about 7 or 8 o'clock at night, and then the next thing I remember is that I woke up on my parents' living room floor at 2 in the morning in the middle of winter with the back door wide open, freezing, and I didn't remember a thing from the night before. And that's a scary, scary feeling to drink that much alcohol and have that happen to you. I went to bed and I didn't sleep much. I woke up the next day, Sunday. I wasn't going to church yet. And so I kind of muddled through the day and just sort of felt sick all day. And Monday I went to school. And because this was a small town in Ohio, I was the talk of the, 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 the school that day. They were all saying, did you see Jamie at that party and, uh, and all this other stuff? And, and you know how kids will do. And when I got to lunch, I was eating with my friends in the cafeteria, and in walked my campus life leader, Joe. This was when they were allowed on campus back then. And I could just feel like his eyes burning into my neck. And I didn't even look at him. I, in my shame, I didn't even want to look at him at all. And so I ignored him all during lunch. But I had wrestling practice after school, and Joe was a, an athlete, so he'd hang around and, and join us in those things. And he met me on my way to wrestling practice, and he looked at me and said, So, what happened this last weekend? And I said, what made you think something happened this last weekend? <laughs> he said, well, when I walked into the cafeteria, every eye looked at me, and then every eye looked at you, and I knew something was up. And so I've never been a good guy at hiding stuff, so I, I unloaded on Joe everything that happened. And what happened next 
literally would be the changing point of my life. See, what happened next is that Joe didn't look at me and say what so many people would say. He didn't look at me and say this. Well, you know, gosh, when I was your age, when I was 17, I did some pretty stupid things too, and let me tell you about what I did. He didn't say that. And he didn't say, well, you know what? What you did is really dumb, but a lot of 17-year-olds do that, and let me help you never to do that again, da-da-da-da. He didn't say that. He asked me one question and one question only that would forever change my life. He said, Jamie, I just got to know, how do you feel about what you did before the Lord? I didn't know the Lord yet, but I knew his law. I'm no dope. I know right from wrong. I know from my own conscience that Romans 1 says, is God's law written on me that what I did was not God's will for my life? I knew that that wasn't good, that that wasn't right. So I looked at Joe and I said, how do I feel before the Lord? I feel cruddy. I feel bad. I feel shameful. I feel guilty. I feel in trouble. And then he looked at me and he said, precisely. And that's what I've been trying to help you see, Jamie, because Jesus wants to forgive you. Jesus comes along and wants to help you. Jesus is the one who gets what you're going through and is the only one who can save you from the future you have apart from him. I didn't accept Christ that night. I remember going home after wrestling practice and just thinking about all that and processing it, but the Holy Spirit was so working on me. Three months later, I received Christ as my Savior and Lord. And I marked that night, that day, as a turning point for me. See, what Joe did was brilliant. He, he wasn't going to try to get in the way of what God was doing. He wasn't going to try to rescue me with some Dr. Phil advice or something like that. He was going to allow God to be God and His Spirit to work on me and for God's law to do its revealing purpose. And so I love how John Stott says it. Look up here on the screen. Stott was a great Anglican pastor of the last century. And in his commentary on Romans, this is good stuff, he says this. The purpose of the law was to lift the lid off man's respectability and disclose what he is really underneath, namely sinful, rebellious, guilty, under the judgment of God and helpless to save himself. And the law must still be allowed to do its God-given duty today. He says one of the great faults of the contemporary church is the tendency to soft-pedal sin and judgment. We must never bypass the law and come straight to the gospel. To do so is to contradict God, the plan of God in biblical history. No man has ever appreciated the gospel until the law has first revealed him to himself. It is only against the inky blackness of the night sky that stars begin to appear, and it is only against the dark background of sin and judgment that the gospel shines forth. Folks, I have experienced this in my life, and it was life-changing. And many of you have experienced this as well. And we need to allow this to occur, as painful and frustrating as it might be, in the lives of those around us. Don't ever shy away from this idea of God's law doing its revealing work just because it's not vogue in society today. This is how God functions in the lives of us and those around him, and we need to embrace this and allow him to do his work. Now, believe it or not, we're just ramping up. There's more, a lot more. This is only the first purpose laid out here. And we're going to switch gears significantly here right now, so you've got you to keep up with me on this. But there's a second purpose of God's grand law laid out here, and this one gets to the heart of my friend's email to me this week. And it's the second thing we need to note, and that is that God's law exists to renew us as followers of Jesus Christ in our commitment 
to righteousness or holiness. Woe. So the first purpose of God's law is to reveal to us before we come to Christ our need for him. But the second purpose comes into play now for all of us, cactus and venue for all of you, who are followers of Jesus Christ. And the law has a continual purpose to renew us in our commitment to righteousness. So look at how verses 24 and 25 go on to say this. It says, so then the law was our guardian, that's the key word, guardian, until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Now, what's it saying here? At first glance, it seems to suggest that what we just said, this is kind of a recap of that, that the law is a guardian leading us to Christ, and now that we know Christ, we no longer have a purpose of the law. But not so fast. I think there's more implied here than meets the eye. So, so, so first, focus on that word guardian, because it's a pregnant word, and let me show you what it means. This word guardian is a combination of two Greek words. It's one Greek word, pedagogos, and it comes from the Greek word pedia, which means child, and ago, which means to lead. And so when you put this word together, this is cool, it literally means a child leader or somebody who leads a child. And one of the most common usages of this word 2,000 years ago in Roman culture was that this word was used in Roman and Greek culture to refer to a rich family who had slaves in their family, and part of the role of the slave children was to be a guide and protector to the wealthy children. So the slave children would walk them to class. They would protect them on their way. They would help them with their schoolwork. They would show them the ways of the world literally to be a guardian for this rich kid until he or she was to reach adulthood. And so obviously in the context here in Galatians, it's saying that the law is our guardian. It's our tutor. It's a schoolmaster to lead us through infancy until we come to a knowledge of Christ, as we've already noted, revealing to us our need to stop trying to please God through our moral efforts and to come to faith in Christ. But I would suggest to you that the imagery does not stop there. I want you to listen to what Tim Keller, author and pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, says about this word and this idea found here. This is really good stuff. Look up here on the screen. He says, but let's draw out the analogy. Is it the design of child-rearing that when a child grows to maturity, he or she then casts off all the values of the parent or guardian and lives in a totally different way? No. If all goes well, the adult child is no longer coerced into obedience as before, but now has internalized the basic values and lives in a similar manner, manner now because he or she wants to. So Galatians is indicating not that we no longer have any relation to the values of God's law, but that we no longer view it as a system of salvation. It no longer forces obedience through coercion or fear, but once we grasp salvation by promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude and a desire to please and be like our Savior, and the way we do this is through obeying the law. And once we come to the law, motivated by gratitude, we are better in our obedience of the law than we ever were when we thought our obedience might save us. So do you see what he's saying, folks? 
He is suggesting that this image of a guardian as applied to God's law doesn't naturally stop with leading us to faith in Christ into adulthood, if you will. It's just a portion of it is put to rest at that time. But then it continues on in its purpose as it now guides us, the guardian guides us in a right understanding of God's law and now in an application of it as ones who are empowered by the Holy Spirit and filled with gratitude to want to now obey God. And so please see, the Christian is not somehow exempt from the standards of God's law. We are not, as the Reformers used to say, antinomian, anti-law. No, we are simply men and women who have been freed from the law's lure to dupe us into thinking that we can be saved through it. But now that we've come to Christ, we're in a prime position to start to live it. We're in a prime position to start to use God's standard. Because, by the way, there is no other If you reject the law and say it doesn't apply at all anymore, then what other standard are we left with? I'll give you a hint. None. So the law still is God's standard of holiness and righteousness, and though you and I don't use it to obey Him for salvation, we do use it as followers of Jesus Christ now as our standard of right and wrong. And this is where good works come into play. They don't save us, but they sure better be an outcome based on God's standard of what we now do as Christians. And this is eminently biblical. Look at Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. If you don't believe me, look up here on the screen. It couldn't be more clear. It says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's it. We are saved by faith and faith alone in Christ and Christ alone. But look at what verse 10 says. For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for, say it with me, good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So there's the balance. We're saved by grace through faith apart from works, but once we're saved, God still wants us to do good works, only now from a heart of gratitude and empowered by His Holy Spirit. And this forms the second wonderful purpose of God's law. And maybe now then, you're ready to understand some Old Testament passages that seem to confuse a lot of Christians over the years, because I hear them talk about these passages and they just don't get it. Maybe now you're ready to understand why some of the Old Testament passages read like this. Look at Psalm 119, verses 97 through 104. It says this, the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies because it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers for your testimonies or my meditation. I understand more than the aged for, aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Here's my question for you. <laughs> If the only purpose of God's law was to reveal sin, then how in the world would you make sense of these words? I mean, if the only purpose of God's law was to reveal how crummy we are, then isn't this kind of a sick passage? I'm so in love with your law because it makes me feel so bad. That's not what he's saying here. 
He's saying, I'm in love with your law because I know as a follower here in Yahweh and in the New Testament of Jesus, I now am empowered through faith to finally get some traction in my obedience to you. That the law becomes my standard of holiness and righteousness. It helps me, if you will, in my sanctification. And I'm really tempted, guys, to, to not say what I'm about to say right now, but because I know that some of you have, have overactive consciences and are feeling a ton of guilt right now, I'll say it just to make sure we understand this rightly. This doesn't mean that you and I are going to live it perfectly. I, I, and it doesn't mean that we need to have a more holier-than-thou attitude with those around us. Not at all. Need I say we're still fallen. We still battle sin and setbacks. There's a lot of grace here. Christ has forgiven us and understands that we have feet of clay, as the Scriptures say. So there's lots of room for humility, patience, perseverance, and compassion. God gets all of that. But that notwithstanding, here's the point of the second purpose of the law. Righteousness matters. It matters for you and me when an onlooking world looks at us and needs to say, does Jesus Christ change you? The answer from us should be, of course, Look at my life. It's an open book. I used to get so drunk that I didn't even remember what I did. No longer. I used to look at images that I knew were wrong and shameful. No longer. I used to lose it in my anger with those around me to the point that they are alienated from me. No longer. In other words, you and I are to grow in righteousness. And the reason that this is so important is because I'm telling you as a pastor, I don't ever hear anybody say this overtly, but I hear Christians have this mindset all the time, and so do you. And that is, well, Christ forgives me, so I guess it's okay. We hear that all the time, right? We get kind of cavalier about our, our righteousness. Well, Christ forgives me, and I'm guaranteed a place in heaven, and there's a lot of grace in this, so I guess it's okay, it meaning the fact that you fall really short and are still a crumb. That's what we're saying. And, you know, I thought about this last night. I thought, you know, we need to change our tune. Here should be our tune based on this teaching. Christ forgives me, so I'm not going to hell, but it's not okay. That, that's really the mindset you need to have, because that's good theology. He does forgive you, and there's nothing you can do to change that if you're in Christ. You, you are guaranteed a place in heaven. He forgives you. But guess what? The fact that we do things that are not incongruity with, or that are incongruous to his holiness is not okay. Think about it with your own kids. I know some of you are thinking this is too hard, but think about your own kids. If your kid came to you and said, maybe as an adult child, 28 years old, just say for the sake of example, and, and, and came to you and, and shared some of the things he or she was doing that were just wrong and were going to be disastrous to their future lives and would mire them in some of the world system that you just knew would not be good for them, and then they said to you, but you know what? I know you love me, so it's okay. What would you say to them? <laughs> As a good parent, you'd say this. You'd say, well, guess what? You got the first part right. I do love you. And there's nothing you can do to ever change that. And there's nothing you can do that would ever make me kick you out of my family. You're secure that way. But I got news for you. It's not okay. Because what you're about to do is going to ruin your life. It's not in line with your family values. It's not how we raised you. So don't kid yourself into thinking it's okay. And God says the same thing to us. He loves you so much that he says, yeah, I've forgiven you. But like how Randy Stonehill said it years ago in one of his songs, he said, grace is not a place for you to wipe your feet. Grace is not a place for you and I to get sloppy. Grace is designed to free us up so that we can now live for God and not to ourselves. And God's law 
helps us understand that and helps us understand what righteousness is. So track the progression this morning. We're just about done here. We're running out of time fast. God's law is designed to reveal sin and our need for a Savior. We're judged and imprisoned by it, but we're released by Christ. It's so cool. God's law further renews us as followers of Jesus Christ in our commitment to righteousness and to holiness. The guardian, who's no longer a guardian to reveal, is now a guardian who guides us in our right application of God's law and obedience. And though we're pretty much out of time, let me share with you the third purpose of the law, hinted to here, affirmed in other scriptures, that's really for another sermon, but we need to see this one. And that is that the third purpose of God's law is to restrain all humanity from going off the deep end (laughs) in their behavior. It's a guardian motif once again. Here's the logic behind this, is that if the purpose of God's law is to reveal our need for a savior, and then to renew a believer's commitment to righteousness, then the question you and I should ask is, well, does it pertain to the rest of humanity at all? In other words, for the rest of the world who have yet to allow the gut law to do its revealing purpose, or to the rest of humanity who aren't believers and have yet to be renewed in their commitment to God's law, what about them? And the reality is, is that the Scriptures affirm that the law still has an application. I think the guardian thing is still in play. Look at how 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10, a really sobering verse, like really tough words. But, but again, this is God's word. These are good words. Look at how it clearly tells us about this purpose of the law. It says, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. These are sobering words, but these are true words. It's simply telling us that God's law, now now, now don't miss this, because God loves all of creation, not just believers, He loves all the people He has made, His law is still operative in their lives even before they've come to Christ. And God has basically said, if you set up a society, if you set up a civilization, even if it's made up of unbelievers or a mixture of both, Try as best you can to include his standards of right and wrong because it will only help protect people from going off the deep end. And to be sure, we have entire societies in history, societies in the history of the world that have ignored God's law, and they're not ones that we think highly of. Nazi Germany. (laughs) Think that was a good moral system? No. Attila the Hun. No one looks at the Huns and said, gee, let's reduplicate that today. The reality is, is that the history of Western civilization, if you've ever taken a Western civ class, has been founded upon Judeo-Christian values, a, a loose application of God's law, and because of that, we are the greatest, one of the greatest nations on earth. And so how do we know that murder is wrong? How do we know that adultery is wrong? How do we know that lying is wrong? Well, you say, because my conscience tells me. Well, what if somebody's conscience says to them it's not wrong? Well, that's where God's law come in, comes in. He says, no, it's still wrong. Or how do we, when somebody else says, you know, how do you know murder and lying and stealing is wrong? Well, society has generally agreed upon that. But again, what do you do about the Huns? What do you do about Nazi Germany? They didn't agree on that. That's where God's law comes in. See, God's law is the only absolute and unchanging, unfailing standard, even for a world 
that is on the brink of going off the deep end. And though in our country this standard is waning fast in our day and age, many have argued that these values found in the law have served us well over the centuries. And maybe now, for some of you who were mad at me last October when I told you that you ought to go into the voting booth and vote God's values when you vote, maybe now you understand why I believe that so deeply. Because reality is you and I live in such an amazing country that doesn't now occur in the Sudan or over in China or other places. We live in a country where it's a democratic republic where we are asked to give our say. We're asked to vote our conscience. We're asked to vote our values. And shame on any Christian that doesn't walk into the voting booth primed with knowing God's Word and His truth and even His law and say, you know what, if I get a say, then here's my vote. And that's not forcing your values on anybody else any more than Lincoln or Washington or Jefferson or any of those guys force their values on us. This is simply us as Christians saying we're born in a free nation in which we're asked, what do we think is good and right for society? And here's my point, God's law tells you and so you're not forcing it on anybody. You're just casting your vote. You're, you're being a part of the public discussion. And we should never take God's law out of the public discussion. This is why I'm proud of organizations like the Alliance Defense Fund, or Alliance Defending Freedom now they call themselves, because they bring into the public arena this discussion of God's truth and values, and they say, we're not shy to do so, because that's what our country is about, and that's what's made us great. And so track where we've come from today. This is good stuff. This is a good little primer on God's law. It exists to reveal to you and me our need for a Savior. Don't get in the way of that with those around you. It exists to renew us in our understanding of holiness. Allow it to permeate your own life and affect your own obedience. And then thirdly, it exists to restrain a crazy culture from going off the deep end by protecting them, even in their own value system. I began this discussion with the title of my message with a very lead-in question. Is God's law good? Say the answer with me. Yes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this book of Galatians that you saw fit to include in your canon 2,000 years ago so that we might understand how your, your system of salvation and even your law all fit together. And Lord, I know that some of the stuff we've talked about here today might be new or even a challenge to some of us. So God, as ones who don't mind chewing on the meat of your word, may we chew on this this week, may we talk about it, ask questions, and Lord, get to the point of peace with your truth as it comes to our lives. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that your grace and your faith are continually operating in our lives and that as the hound of heaven, you're constantly, constantly chasing after each one of us here today. May that be our hope. May that be that which we bank on. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.